is a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Tomorrow's just a dream away Man has a dream and that's the start He follows his dream with mind and heart When it becomes a reality It's a dream come true for you and me So there's a great big beautiful tomorrow Shining at the end of every day There's a great big beautiful tomorrow Just a dream away Hello and welcome to Dream With Mind and Heart. I'm Ryan Silverstein and with me is Megan Bojarski. Hello, everyone. And we are your hosts through this chronological tour of every Disney movie ever. This week, we're doing our second bonus episode coming out of our second season, kind of leading into season three, checking in on the short cartoons Disney produced in the 1950s. I think I'd only seen two of these before. I'm sure I had seen other ones as a kid as clips in various things, but I hadn't actually seen like any of these shorts before nor would i have been able to tell you when any short had come out like i'm sure there's there's disney shorts i've seen i have no idea what decade they're from but we wanted to look at the ones in the 50s because this is basically the last major decade shorts being a major part of disney's animated output i in what will be a surprise to absolutely no one had seen (laughs) none of these of course I had heard of a couple of them, but I hadn't actually seen many of them because by my era, I definitely grew up like during and post Renaissance Disney. And so everything was about the princesses. And if you expanded it, it was still about like the princess era and like the princesses heroes. If we're including like Aladdin and Simba and Hercules and those kinds of things. So the shorts were never something that I was horribly connected with but as we've gone through this they're so important to Disney as a company I mean that's really where it all started of course but it's also a great place to see kind of a litmus test of what Disney was thinking and feeling as a company and one of the things that I think we're going to see as we go through these is that there was definitely a shift somewhere in the 40s between the gag-filled shorts of the early decades and more social commentary type uh, shorts, which are definitely more prevalent in the ones we're talking about today. And I think part of the reason why we picked the ones that we picked for this episode is because they sounded the most interesting. I'm sure we could have filled this with more gag-driven Donald or Pluto cartoons, you know, or, or Chip and Dale. All, like, every Chip and Dale cartoon I've ever seen is very gag-driven. But I think there's a lot more interesting output when you start to go outside of that. You know, and obviously, as we talked about in our first bonus episode, sort of the 30s were the, the Mickey decade, 40s was kind of the Donald decade, and Pluto starts to be more prominent, especially as we get post-war. But the 50s is, if if any one character dominated the 50 shorts, maybe not in terms of pure numbers, as uh, Megan helpfully put in our notes, he certainly dominated in terms of like the the kind of shorts that Disney was making. 
if that makes sense. Goofy, our, our good friend Goofy, originally known as Dippy Dog, before he got a much better name as Goofy, and as we will discuss, he got a third name in this decade. I mean, part of this is, like you said, of the 94 shorts that were put together in the 50s, we've chosen 11. So we are definitely not covering everything, but of the ones we're covering, Goofy is definitely kind of the main man because he has some of the most kind of interesting and I want to say important shorts. Like they're not ones that you go in and you laugh and you leave. They're the ones that kind of stick in your head. And that's definitely something that I think is present in the 11 shorts that we're going to talk through today. Yeah, because I feel like, you know, like a Donald short is basically Donald tries to do a thing, gets really frustrated trying to do that thing, rinse and repeat. And I think even while there is a this sort of how-to template, which we talked about, I think, for the first time with Saludos Amigos, which is like the where that this sort of style originates from, there's there's so much that they can do with that form. Even like, because I remember they did one in the 2000s that was like how to set up your new big screen tv and it was done in this exact same style and like the only thing that was different was that like it was a flat screen tv like that was like the main distinguishing feature but it was the same sort of narration same same sort of goofy humor goofy the character humor not goofy humor um (laughs) so you know i think it's kind of a durable thing and i also think it's really interesting the social commentary aspects that we're going to talk about, but also the animation design. Like I also remember we talked about during Reluctant Dragon with the, I forget his name, but the the Smart Baby limited animation short where I, I just remember thinking when I watched it, you know, thinking about the time period that it was from that it felt very like felt very modern. And to me, like I always think of Disney because so many of them are fairy tales. I sort of think of that, like almost like that vaguely timeless medieval, you know, there's people living in castles. There isn't electricity. Like that's the sort of like Disney aesthetic that I think of. And so it was really fun going through this list of shorts that we pulled together and how many of them were, them drawing and depicting the time period that they were living in. Yeah, I think Baby Weems is who you're thinking of. Yes, thank you. As we've been going through this, we've mentioned that, like, Mickey is such a big part of Disney, and yet we almost never talk about him. And I think that the kind of contemporary social political world is also such a big deal to Disney that we don't talk about because of the fantasy setting of so many of the big ones. But yeah, I think in this one, is there anything that is, there's, there's two that are kind of historically set, but even so it's like 50 years historical, not anything back in time in this kind of fantasy medieval realm. So it is kind of this, other side of Disney that we don't get to talk about as much because it isn't as prevalent in the movies. Although I think we'll start to see more of that as we move into more of the live action movies. Yeah, we'll definitely see it more in some of the live action stuff. And even, you know, even stuff like Dumbo, like that might take place roughly in 1940. But like, I don't, 
you know, it, it, it feels still like it's very timeless versus like being set in a specific place in time. And a lot of these are very much, you know, like we said, commentating on the current thing and even different from Looney Tunes, you know, like when thinking about like Sylvester and Tweety living in like a contemporary house at the time, it's not doing social commentary most of the time, you know, same thing with Tom and Jerry or like, you know, Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote, like they have paved roads in those cartoons, but it's not, it's not really doing commentary on like, what is the automobile doing to society? You know, and, and the fifties specifically, you know, it is really the last, the last major decade. Like Disney does shorts kind of, but more sporadically after this point. Yeah, I mean, when I was reading Wild Minds, the artists and rivalries that inspired the golden age of animation, I was going through it and it was talking about how in the 50s we start to see the big turn to children's animation and children's pop culture, kind of generally. And we definitely start to see that in Disney as well as in the turn to television as a big medium. But I think that's such a jarring contrast where the movies may have been going much more towards the youthful audience, but the shorts are absolutely still for adults and are talking about issues that would not make sense to children or at least would not come through all the way. I mean, there's definitely, you know, cartoon humor laced throughout these, but it, it it's not the focus the way that it is, especially with some of the movies of the 50s. So we're going to talk about, I think it's 11 shorts overall. And so I will put the names of them all in the show notes. Uh, these are all available on YouTube or on Daily Motion. There's one that I couldn't find on uh, a YouTube version of. So if you if you Google them or like if you Google Motor Media is the first one we're going to talk about. If you Google Motor Media Disney, you will find and be able to watch these all for free because they are just out there in various degrees of quality, but they're there and you can watch them. Uh, so I, I will put the full list in the show notes. So if you want to pause the episode, watch the shorts and come back, you'll be able to do so even though none of these are on Disney+. Plus. I was actually a little surprised that not a single one. And then some of them watching them, I was like, oh, obviously it makes sense that they're not on there. Well, not that it makes sense, but I'm not surprised that they're not on there. So the, the first one we're going to talk about is Motor Mania from 1950, directed by Jack Kinney, written by Mitch Schaefer and Dick Kenny was released in June, uh, June 30th, 1950. And it is basically a, and you called it in, in your notes, sort of a, a, a Jekyll and Hyde take on driving. And so we meet this new version of Goofy, where he is a normal, they call him Mr. Walker, um, when he is not behind the wheel of a car. Uh, and then he turns into a complete road rage maniac the minute that he gets behind the wheel of an automobile. And they call him Mr. Wheeler. So it's this really fun sort of conceit. And again, very much the social commentary on driving and cars. So this has a fully redesigned Goofy. He doesn't have ears in this, but his ears come back later with this same design. And this sort of like modern everyman Goofy is actually named George Geef, uh, G-E-E-F. And that becomes like sort of a recurring name featured on here. And like if you are a 90s kid like me and are familiar with uh, Goof Troop, the series, which uh, a Goofy movie is the feature length version of, 
I believe he is called like Goofy GG Goof as a reference that like his full name would be Goofy George Geef Goof to sort of like wrap this suburbanite uh, or at least, you know, modern day Goofy into the that that depiction of the character. So it's kind of interesting that that sort of does pull from uh, this era of the shorts and really does like a goof troop is kind of a 90s spin on the concept of a suburb a, a goofy enjoying suburban life and according to the goofy success story from disneyland the explanation the official explanation for him not having ears at least in this short is that they are under his hat and they're tied up tied up above his head under his hat i don't it doesn't explain why we don't see them when his hat also becomes a convertible with a removable top but I will let it slide in this case. So a, a few other notes about this short. It was used as an, arm, an army commercial film in 1955. It was also awarded the Buyer Trophy for the best film on traffic safety. Goofy in his Mr. Walker persona does make a cameo reading a newspaper in Two Town in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The car that he drives is a yellow Lincoln Zephyr convertible, so it is based on a specific car. And this is not the last time we're going to talk about traffic safety themed shorts on this episode, but this is maybe the most popular. It's one that has shown up on, it was aired on an episode of, of Disneyland and then later Walt Disney's Wonderful World of Color. It showed up again on the Mickey Mouse Club and various other cartoons like Mickey Mouse Tracks, Donald's Quack Attack, Good Morning Mickey. These were all shows that would air on the Disney Channel that were sort of co- compilations of various shorts, uh, which I think is probably how I saw the ones of these that I have seen. It got a few home video releases as well. It was included with the Wind in the Willows VHS tape. There was also a Goofy's Greatest Hits tape that it was included on. There's a driver safety DVD that included this, as well as the uh, the Walt Disney Treasure, sort of like the prestige DVD line that was trying to release everything also released, also included this on their complete Goofy DVD set. Another place that this popped up uh, was on DTV, that's D-TV, which was a music video series uh, that aired on the Disney Channel in the 80s. They would take classic Disney animated segments and set them to pop music uh, so clips from this cartoon were paired with I Get Around by the Beach Boys, which I think makes sense when you think about it, because that's a very car-based song. This is a very car-based short. The fact that Disney was like, we have our own cable channel. We should capitalize on the popularity of MTV. What do kids like these days? The Beach Boys and old cartoons is just a, a fascinating concept. <laughs> and I got a little distracted by it. But Megan, what were your thoughts on Motor Mania? So I thought this was really, really effective as far as social commentary goes. I mean, this literally came out 73 years ago. Oh my God, that's terrifying. This came out 73 years ago. And yet (laughs) when I was watching it, I first went, yeah, I definitely know people who act like that. And then as it progressed, went, oh wait, I do some of these things which I think is really effective, that it kind of caught you on both sides of that. Because I I think it's very easy to point at somebody else and say like, yeah, other people are bad drivers. But specifically for me, there was a segment where uh, there was a red light and he just got irrationally upset about it. And he's like, oh my God, a 30 second delay in my commute. 
I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've done that. You know, you're, you're going somewhere and you're feeling good and then the red light comes and you just don't want to deal with it. I felt like this just did such a good job of making... I, I'm not a person with road rage by any means, but making kind of anyone who's ever driven go, okay, yeah, I'll admit I've done some of these things before, which hopefully makes people actually think through kind of what they're doing as they go through their lives. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, George Carlin quotes is, have you ever noticed that anyone driving slower than you is an idiot and anyone driving faster than you is a maniac? And I think this short absolutely captures that sort of narcissistic mentality when you're driving a car where it's like, no, what I'm, I'm the only one doing anything correctly. No matter what I do, I'm in the right. Everyone else is in the wrong. And I think the way that it plays it mixes both like relatable things like that, the, the red light issue with like more extreme examples of like him trying to cross the street as a pedestrian. And it really, I think that it becomes really effective satire because it balances both really well. I've legitimately had about 10 conversations just in the past week about how terrible everyone is as drivers these days. Just with all sorts of different people, it's it's even the, the method of small talk. We don't talk about the weather. We talk about how bad of drivers everybody is. So it's probably the least dated thing we've watched so far. This does not feel like almost 75-year-old animation. This feels like something that absolutely could and probably should be made today. Right, like you could run this, you, you could throw throw this out there and... It, yes, I, I think the commentary still holds up, but I do think one of the really recurring themes that jumped out at me over the course of oh, pretty much almost, actually almost all of these shorts, the sort of, you know, conservative, not necessarily political, although that it all does kind of tie in together, the conservative mindset around most of these shorts, where like some of the message of, of a lot of these is like, weren't things just better back then? <laughs> and like, there's a lot of there's a lot of implications that I don't necessarily think these shorts are, are attempting to make, but you know the way that that often gets framed now has certain connotations to it, and I do think there is a sort of you know even even in this, even though the social commentary is like very effective and very accurate, it is sort of being like this is what's wrong with contemporary society with the guise of like it wasn't always like this and you know the people making this were young enough to maybe not not remember like pre-automobile but you know certainly had seen you know cars getting faster and bigger you know and and, and more numerous o over the course of their lifetimes yeah i think that like we said last time by the 50s we are starting to get you know mickey mouse as walt as the guy who's just trying to live his, like, suburbanite life, who's just trying to kind of go through life and enjoy things and relax and spend time with family. And all of that contributes to this idea of the good old days that I admit I really appreciate. Uh, our last short, which we'll talk about uh, much later, kind of challenging it, kind of flipping this idea on its head that it really isn't all about like, oh, as technology develops, like, oh, we're losing what made people great. It's more acknowledging like, wait, no, we're doing this. This isn't, this isn't technology somehow perverting us. It's us 
using it in ways we probably shouldn't be using it. So I think that it's going to be really interesting to see, like you said, that kind of social pseudo-political mindset that's moving throughout this of what America should be. I think here it, it's fairly benign or at the very least like barely implied by it. But watching all these in, in succession, I feel like really, really hammered that home. I, I really like this. I, I think it's funny. I think you're spot on about how it, it's kind of evergreen in the sense that like all of these problems just still exist. And, you know, it it's so funny because whenever I'm driving in, in Philadelphia, you know, if, if I'm driving I'm always like, oh, like these pedestrians, like get out of the street. <laughs> and then like if I'm once I park and I'm walking around town, I'm like, these cars need to really like watch out for people walking. And so it, it definitely does. I think there is something really true about the, the mindset of the, the duality here that, that it captures. And I think that one of the things that we'll definitely talk about, like I said, when we get to the story of Anyberg, USA, is that in this short, in Motormania, because we see this character literally change from one person to another, we don't have to blame any individuals. We can see that behavior in ourselves. We can, you know, pull ourselves back from it. But we're not saying, like, look at these horrible people. They're terrible, and they're, you know, outright trying to kill people. And it's going to be interesting to see how that is kind of flipped entirely on its head as we move through the 50s. Talking about the kind of political, not political, the next one that we're going to be talking about sounded so interesting to me and is not at all what you would think it would be. 1951, we have the short Cold War. It's not about that Cold War, but <laughs> it's, it's actually a short that is essentially talking about when you get a cold or when you get sick in general and kind of the, the war inside your body and the way that society treats you and you treat yourself. This one was directed again by Jack Kinney, was written by Milt Schaefer and Dick Kinney, and released April 27th, 1951. I think that it, it does a lot of kind of interesting takes. We see at one point that the cold or the virus, whatever it is, is literally like beating up Goofy's nose, which it certainly feels like that if you have uh, a bad enough cold or flu. And it just kind of goes through the various stages, you know, how do the people in your life react to it? Are you treated with sympathy or are you basically told to get over it? And kind of playing into how the world treats someone who's literally at war with their own physical health. So just looking at this one, it wasn't super widely spread. Um, it was on television in four different shows with... Uh, Walt Disney Presents, Walt Disney's Mickey and Donald, Donald's Quack Attack, and Mickey's Mouse Tracks. So a lot of the similar ones to Motor Mania. And then it was only ever released on DVD once in the Walt Disney Treasures The Complete Goofy Pack. So this is just another one that kind of plays with the idea of everyday life and the humor and frustration that comes with it. I think it does a pretty good job kind of breaking down what it feels like to be sick. It does have some blatant sexism in it that is frustrating, to say the least, but not, not necessarily surprising by any means. But I think for me personally, one of the most interesting parts was to see 
what was described as literally a cold being taken so seriously. This is something that is genuinely harmful to Goofy that needs to be taken seriously. And that's just such an interesting perspective given that now, after we've gone through COVID for so many years, people are saying, oh, well, COVID is just a flu and a flu is just a cold. And back in the 50s, a cold was something to actually acknowledge and deal with. And I just found that very interesting kind of to to play with the different implications of all of that. I definitely think that makes this a lot more interesting watching post-COVID than probably I would have gotten out of it pre-COVID. So I think maybe Disney should probably re- potentially re-release this one. You know, I, I thought it was, it, it's it's a cool conceit. Um, I really like the, you know, personification of the cold and, uh, you know, a bunch of the gags that they walk through with this. But, you know, I, I, I really think your point about the sort of 2023 view of it is is maybe the most interesting thing about it overall. But this wasn't one that I was like particularly impressed with. That's fair. I think that this one is, it's it's quality. There's nothing wrong with it, but it's not necessarily going to be one of those shorts that, you know, sticks with you forever and defines your view of life like maybe the next one is going to be. Yeah, the, coming out the same year in, in 1951, is called No Smoking, also directed by Jack Kinney, also written by Mitch Schaefer and Dick Kinney. This was released in November of 1951. And this basically has uh, George Keefe attempt to quit smoking, uh, basically cold turkey. And this is one that was rarely shown on television uh, for reasons that may or may not be obvious. So it was shown on Walt Disney Presents uh, and it popped up a few other times. Uh, But because of the you know, the theme of smoking, even though like it's certainly not, I would not call this a pro smoking cartoon, but there's also a firing squad in it. So it really didn't get aired a lot on TV. And then when it was aired on Walt Disney Presents in the A Salute to Father episode, which the previous short Cold War also was included in that package, the ending was altered to include an extra announcement with Goofy announcing that he had actually quit smoking for good. So they did actually kind of revise this a little bit to maybe maybe hit the point of this one a little bit harder than they had because it kind of ends with the joke about how hard it is to quit smoking or how not or how he doesn't really want to quit smoking. Megan, this was one you added to our list uh, for very interesting and very smart reasons. And so I, I will gladly let you uh, let you talk about why we included this one in particular. Part of this was just my own personal story because my father has been a smoker my entire life. But part of this was really leaning into, again, looking at the ideas of how much Walt and some of the other uh, major figures in Disney kind of influenced the content they were putting out. So something that we've mentioned a couple of times on the podcast before, Walt was a very heavy smoker to the extent that it is one of the reasons that is often cited for him stopping voicing Mickey Mouse. And it's something that we're going to talk about a lot more as Walt becomes a public figure himself. So for most of the company's history up until this point, Walt had kind of been the name on the company. As we start to lean into the Disneyland era, uh, which we will talk about much more later, Walt himself became kind of this public figure, and he believed that he needed to be a role model. And 
Part of that was that he felt he should not be seen as a smoker, but he couldn't seem to stop. And so there was one quote from Walt Disney and American Original by Bob Thomas that I felt just was really kind of powerful from Walt. He's quoted as saying, you're right about one thing, smoking and drinking are sins because you are one of God's creatures. And if you don't take care of the body he gave you, you are committing a sin. It was a deeply not just moral or social, but in fact, a religious issue to him that you should not be a smoker. You should not kind of destroy your body this way. But of course, that was in complete contrast to how he lived his life. In this particular case, it is very depressing. Walt had been a heavy smoker since at least World War I, which he was 16 uh, when he first tried to join the army. And as we will discuss in far more depth, probably in about a year, he visited uh, St. Joseph's Hospital in November 1966 to see what was up with his health. And doctors found a tumor on his left lung. And he passed away just over a month later from circulatory collapse caused by lung cancer. So this short is both interesting and horrifying knowing where things were going to go. An added layer that makes it that much more horrifying is that Pinto Kolvig, who had been the voice of Goofy during this, was also a longtime smoker, and he was currently suffering from lung disease when he made this short, and he ended up dying of lung cancer as well just one year after Walt did. So this is kind of a, a fascinating and horrifying case study of Disney's connection with smoking and its difficulty in quitting with the addiction and with its ultimate consequences. And I think this one does actually a really good job of, again, balancing the message of it while also being very funny, seeing goofy driven to the point of madness and obsession uh, because all he wants is to smoke something whether it be a cigarette a pipe a cigar he doesn't seem very picky about it i think it you know allows us to sort of laugh at how ridiculous he's being but i think that it also actually does portray what addiction feels like in a way that is also relatable like I, I do think it actually strikes a really good balance between the two and I think that actually makes it really effective and you know knowing what's what's going to happen to Walt and then I, I did not know that about uh, Pinto Colvig at all you know I think underscores the sort of that there's a sadness to this that I think actually does come through knowing that context I, I feel like you can see the sadness in the short itself like I said, I watched this with my dad, who has been smoking longer than I've been alive, and he had quit for several years, and as he told me last night, all it took was one cigarette to completely break that abstinence. And when he watched it, which I think he was expecting it to be very preachy, the first thing he said was, I need to find out if Walt was a smoker because this is exactly what it feels like. And so I think while we can watch it and find it funny and say, see, does, isn't this kind of silly? 
also people who are addicted to uh, nicotine and to smoking really see an honest portrayal in a way that I, I don't think most of the stop smoking animations or commercials really ever could. This wasn't a condemnation as much as an acknowledgement of how hard it really is, but also an argument that you should stop if you possibly can. This feels like it comes from a place of not talking down to, like if it is trying to actually get people to, to stop smoking, I don't think it it's talking down to them so much as speaking to them from experience. And so, you know, like I said, I, I do think there are humorous elements to it, but it's, it's the kind of, it's that kind of knowing humor versus the, it's, it's not, it, it's not punching down at smokers. It's being like, doesn't it make us feel this way? You know, it, it feels like it comes from that sort of knowing sense of community about it. And I feel like that's where the humor side comes from more than, you know, again, like it's not, it's not making smokers look ridiculous, but, and, and pointing at them and laughing, it's, it's kind of saying, aren't we, aren't we ridiculous? Leaning into the desperation side of it and the frustration of kind of being surrounded by nicotine products and being unable to have them and really enjoying smoking, finding some good things from it, is, is absolutely telling it from the perspective of a smoker. And to be honest, that's not a perspective I can understand, but I definitely saw a side of it that I think is easy to dismiss when you're not a smoker. It's easy for, you know, those of us who aren't to say, you know, why are you doing this? It's expensive. It's ruining your body. Like, why would you do it? And I think that Perhaps if there were more commercials that were this understanding, more advertisements that really knew the experience, maybe we'd actually be able to help people with addiction instead of just shaming them for it. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, you know, in, in my own very small way, there was a summer in college where I was living with a bunch of people who smoked and I sort of became a, a social smoker. And then I was like, all right, when I'm going back to school, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to continue this. I'm just going to drop it other than like, I occasionally smoke cigars with people socially, but I was really actually surprised because like, I, I was never even more than like a cigarette a day at most during that whole summer. But I was really surprised that like, you know, it was almost a full year before I would, before I stopped noticing that I would like occasionally get a hankering to smoke. Like it, it is the addictive power of it is actually pretty incredible. And so it, it really does, you know, I, I think to your point, I, I feel like the message is a lot stronger because it's coming from that place of knowing. And, and again, it's not, it, it's not scaring. It's not trying to scare people. It's not a, um, it's not a scared straight kind of approach. Turning to a subject that's a little bit brighter, but one that I also picked because I'm going to continue to hammer my confusion at the world of Mickey Mouse home. We have Man's Best Friend from 1952. This one, again, directed by Jack Kinney. Uh, but this one was actually written by Milt Banta and Albertino. This came out in April 1952. 
And basically what it is, is George Geef, uh, Goofy, gets a dog. And kind of talking about, you know, why a person gets a dog and how they try to train them. And I just want to know why we have a story about a dog getting a pet dog. There were, there were so many other options. So many other characters could have gotten a dog. Canonically, there are characters with dogs. But we had to have a dog get a dog. I'm aware this is not a, a point that matters, but I will continue to complain about it every time I get the opportunity. Yeah, I am glad that you picked it on this basis as you consider to as you continue to hammer that point home <laughs> whenever whenever it becomes relevant. Yeah, so in this one, they kind of play a little bit more silly as they did with some of the earlier goofy how-to uh, cartoons. And they definitely kind of play into the idea that, like, this dog just does what the dog wants. And that Goofy is, if anything, being the one who's actually trained here, not the dog itself. I find that that's a little less successful when Goofy is also a dog. But that's, that's just my, my personal take. But it, it kind of plays with the, the various angles of dog ownership and the support you get, but also the frustration and as a dog owner, it, it feels very accurate. Going back to things like Motor Mania, I, I feel like this is yet again a cartoon that could be made today, and very little would be different about it. Yeah, they would just have to add some gags about posting pictures of your dog on social media all the time, and it would be basically up to date. Uh, overall, I, I thought this was, was fine, I guess. You know, I, I actually do think that goofy having a dog is maybe the most actual interesting thing about this you know and i don't have a dog at the moment but i I grew up in a house with dogs so i definitely find it relatable i think my big problem with this one is that i just didn't find the design of bowser to be all that cute and not even like ugly cute like it was almost like his this design was like too generic his paws being a different color from the rest of his body like i know there are dogs that do look like that but it was. It felt really distracting for some reason. I don't know. There was something about the animation and design of the dog itself that just didn't didn't quite do it for me. I think my argument with that would be that they really had to make it clear that this was a dog dog, not a Pluto dog or a Goofy dog, but just a normal dog with no humanoid personality traits. And I think to some extent that did force them to be beige is going to be the adjective I use there about their description of the dog. That they, they couldn't give it too much personality or it would be far too much like Pluto or, or even Goofy there. I honestly think if it had been Pluto, it probably would have worked just as well. But also if it had been like a Dalmatian or a Dachshund or like some other like recognizable breed of dog... I think it would also have worked fairly well. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's the animation design. Maybe I feel like Bowser didn't have enough of his own personality. Like he just kind of felt like he's just a dog that does whatever he wants. I don't know. I don't know. There's just something missing from this for me to really like latch onto it. I will say this one actually did have a pretty big legacy. It was actually in six different kind of television showings as well as being in two different Goofy collections, one on VHS and one on DVD. So somebody thought that this was like a really top tier uh, Goofy animation. 
I personally think that it is a sufficient animation. It does what it needs to do, but it's not exactly... It's not my favorite, I will say. That's kind of how I feel. Like, I wasn't, you know, I enjoyed watching it, but it, it's not one that I, I would be, like, going back to or would, like, recommend for people who haven't seen a ton of these. It's just like, oh, yeah, like, it, you know, it's a pretty decent cartoon. You know, and then... Uh, later on in 1952, we get to The Little House, which was directed by Wilford Jackson. This is based on the 1942 Caldecott Medal winning children's book by Virginia Lee Burton and is the story of a little house that basically goes from the turn of the 20th century through the 1950s with a house in the country basically getting encroached on by the city repeatedly. They built like Victorian houses and those burned down. They built like brick apartment buildings around it. And then those get demolished for skyscrapers. And at the end, a very sweet couple rescues the little house from the city and moves it into a new part of the country that has not been super developed, which was an interesting kind of ending. Maybe most notable for being narrated by Sterling Holloway, who will eventually go on to voice Winnie the Pooh, but you may remember as the stork from Dumbo. This popped up one time on Disneyland uh, in their Adventures in Fantasy episode. It was included in the VHS release of Winnie the Pooh and a Day for Eeyore uh, outside the United States, I guess because of the Sterling Holloway connection. Uh, It was also on the Walt Disney Treasures Disney Rarities DVD and Walt Disney's It's a Small World of Fun Volume 4. This is one that falls into sort of the miscellaneous Disney shorts because it doesn't feature a recurring character or really any other characters at all other than the house itself. This is definitely one that has that sort of conservative bent to it where whether or not you want to say that it's preferring olden times to more current times or just preferring country to city, uh, this definitely feels oh, aren't things better out in the rest of the country and in a way from these large cities? And, you know, there's a lot of the cities depicted as as loud and impersonal and scary. And the I like the personification of the buildings overall. Like, I think that is a, a fun idea. But, you know, based on the preview artwork, I was actually really excited to watch this one because I thought the animation would be maybe especially interesting and it is it is good i think it does look better than kind of some of these goofy cartoons that we're talking about in terms of style it's a little bit more complex or at least a little bit more distinct but overall there's not really much to the story either so it 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 kind of it kind of goes nowhere and i i feel like disney can be so good at pulling your heartstrings for inanimate objects like the the segment from the package films about the two hats that fall in love. And I feel like this was missing, missing that. Like there, there wasn't like an emotional hook to make me really care about this house. Yeah. I think that if we're going for the sympathy angle, the best moment where I care most about the house is very near the end where the house is not, not quite suicidal, but is expecting to be torn down and is like, okay, come on, I guess everyone has a time and this is mine and I'm fine with that. And that's that's the point where I'm most sympathetic towards the house. And if you're going to have something going for, you know, six to eight minutes and I don't care about the main character until, like, minute five, that's not a great sign. But I think that part of it is definitely that we don't get the same level of personality 
that we'll get from other inanimate object characters in other shorts or, like you said, in the hats. But I also just felt like, knowing American history, this short was just kind of uncomfortable for how strongly it tied to the period of white flight, where, you know, upstanding white families wanted to flee the cities because they were loud and scary and dangerous and wanted to go to places where nobody else had been except, you know, all the indigenous people. And it, it just, it felt very, very nestled within the historical context of white flight, which would continue through the 50s and the early 60s. I think you're 100% on point uh, with that critique in terms of the politics of this short, in terms of the way that it depicts, you know, cities and country life and the couple at the end, especially, I think kind of really, really pulls that that thread together. I did read up on the children's book a little bit, and Virginia Lee Burton, the author, was defending it from being a, because uh, a lot of people have called it a critique of urban sprawl in general, and she's saying, well, really, it's just about like the passes of time and how things change. I don't know if that's better or worse, <laughs> so to speak. But I, I, I definitely think that you are absolutely hitting the nail on the head in terms of the like, really the most powerful thing about this is the fact that it sort of speaks to that sort of white flight, idealized country life mentality that is like just so very American in general. You know, this does have a little bit of a legacy beyond uh, where it showed up, you know, on, on, on TV. The apartments and skyscrapers are actually somewhere in the background of, of Two Town in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And the house itself apparently is a house in the neighborhood where Chip lives in the Chippendale Rescue Rangers movie uh, that came out last year. It's interesting that, you know, for all that the short itself is about, oh, let's kind of shy away from modernity and live our happy old style life, that it has kind of continued on into more modern Disney products. Yeah, and I, I, I do think the design of the house like is cute and is recognizable enough where you could put it in somewhere. And, and if you had seen this short, you might remember that that's what that house looks like. But, you know, like I said, o- overall, this was kind of a letdown, both in terms of the message of the story and also just the whole, you know, the whole experience of watching it. Because I, I agree, it, it kind of doesn't, it makes sense that this was adapted from a 40 page picture book. Unfortunately, the shorts that we're looking at tend to either be beyond my expectations or, or far below them, which unfortunately is kind of the case with our next short, How to Dance from 1953. This one we could not find on YouTube. You can find the credits for it, but you can't actually find the short itself for pretty good reasons. They have some concerning pieces. But essentially, it follows more the historical narrative theme. But essentially, it follows kind of the historical retelling framing that we had a few times over this period of time. It's not necessarily showing one character learning to dance so much as explaining kind of the history of dance and how difficult it can be. 
So this one was directed by Jack Kinney, written by Malt Schaefer and Dick Kinney. Those are names that we are hearing again and again. This one came out in July of 1953, and it just shows people dancing and shows people getting confused by dancing. As someone who really loves ballroom dance and swing dance, I was really hoping to be able to distinctly tell what dances they were doing or to actually see some interesting discussions about the genuine complexities of dance. And more so, it ended up just kind of being like, ah, yes, yeah, sometimes it's hard to put your feet in the right spot. And that, that kind of seemed to be their big point, which was a little disappointing with how, I guess, intimate uh, some of the other shorts that we've talked through seem to have been. And again, this this is one that also pops has popped up a lot in various Disney programming. It seems like one that they like to pull out and drop into things. Um, like any of their compilation shows, they will kind of often put this in. I think maybe because it is still kind of relatable and also like doesn't have any obvious racial stereotype or smoking issues but yeah th this was fine i kind of enjoyed goofy putting his arm through the armholes of the mannequin to practice dancing didn't really kind of go anywhere like i just thought that was like a clever idea and then you know the the gags they did with it were just kind of okay uh, the only part that really made me like even chuckle was him cutting out the paper footprints and just putting them down on the rug, but the window is open. And so the wind is like blowing them across his apartment and out into the hallway. That was kind of fun, but I, I agree. Like it, given, given how funny I, some of these are, this one w was kind of a letdown. The other thing that kind of stood out to me was that they were showing like how difficult this is for the male and admittedly, the men usually have to lead, and that is a lot harder than it seems. But one thing that just kind of drove me crazy in this was that they showed, like, he's trying to, to dance with a woman, and she looks so elegant and graceful, only for it to show that she's sitting on, like, a rolling stool, so she's not actually doing any footwork or anything. And that just drove me a little bit insane. Mm -hmm. Because it always reminds me of the Ginger Rogers quote that, you know, she was doing everything Fred Astaire was, just backwards and in high heels. There are definitely complexities to being the lead in a partner dance. But the women aren't just being twirled around on a rolling chair. Like, they, they are doing some really complex footwork and workouts. But that's, that's just my gripe as someone who has done some ballroom dance from the lead and the follows perspective, like th there was no re there was no reason to just be like, yeah, men have to work their butts off and women just get to look pretty. But that that admittedly does come up in in several of these. Li life is harder for men and women just kind of float around in it. I think just because Goofy is our kind of uh, point of view character. There's a way to do a joke like that and turn it around and make men the butt of the joke, but this was not that. The next one that we're talking about is Football Now and Then, uh, also from 1953. This came out in October and was directed by Jack Kinney and written by Lance Nolly. This has popped up a couple of times here and there. There is also a goofy uh, learning how to play football one that I feel like I've seen this paired with before. 
but this is a uh, a game of football between the like modern football players and a old timey football player team, and it just gets like kind of you know over the top and exaggerates all all the differences and whatever. I actually I, I like this. I mean, football was my favorite sport to watch when I was a kid, and so there's a little bit of nostalgia there i do think the funniest thing about this is that it ends with a joke about the power of commercial advertising on television as the as the grandfather is like i'm gonna go buy a dishwasher that actually made me laugh more than and anything in the short in, in the rest of the short itself like more than the actual football stuff did i'm just not really a sports person especially a football person so i think part of why this one didn't land as much for me was just that i'm not super connected with that. But I will say that one thing that kind of stood out to me was they, they had the same kind of arguments of, you know, oh, well, the football players in my time were infinitely better than these people these days is something I have heard from my dad and my sister and the sports lovers in our family so many times that that, again, was just another thing that felt like it rang really true throughout time that we always kind of have oh no but the new team has all these newfangled plans yeah but the other people had spirit and that's what really matters in kind of a uh, field of dreams-esque sports analogy so i i did like seeing kind of how those dynamics worked i didn't particularly like the commercials but that's just personal opinion I I will say there were some uncomfortable uh, racial dynamics in this one where the old time team was very clearly very like pasty and white and the new team is ambiguously not white and they do side with one team over the other the vast majority of the time. I do think that's interesting because the football color barrier was broken right after world war ii i i didn't think about that honestly when i when i was watching it but only because like this is one i definitely remember having seen as a kid at some point and so i i just don't think i i clocked it then and so i didn't clock it now which is which is my my personal shortcoming on this but i definitely think that's that's present i'm, I'm certainly not going to argue with you about it and i can i can certainly think back to it and and see it now that you pointed out I, I will say, I, it's not that I like the commercials. I really only like that there is a payoff to the commercials. And if there was, if that payoff did not exist, I I wouldn't want them in the short at all. And it, it, it just, I didn't expect it to end that way. And that actually did make me laugh that the grandfather was like, I actually don't care about any of this. I'm just going to go buy a dishwasher now. I think for me, admittedly, Super Bowl season is fun commercial season. So that does kind of play into it a lot. But I'm not used to those kinds of commercials being for, like, a dishwasher. I'm much more used to, like, really weird Old Spice commercials and, like, Doritos trying to have, like, the best commercial of the year. And Budweiser somehow always having a commercial that makes you cry about, like, dogs and horses and drunk driving. So I think to, to some extent that might just be a little dated for me. That if they had thrown in a more uh, modern commercial, it would have kind of landed better. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I basically only really know about advertising from this era from it showing up in other things. So, 
you know, but like I said, it, it's really that, that gag at the end that makes it pay off for me. So the next one that we're going to talk about uh, is actually the first Disney short to win an Oscar since Der Fuhrer's Face. So this is kind of a, a big one in our stroll through the 50s. Toot, whistle, plunk, and boom. So this was the second of two Adventures in Music shorts. So there were a couple of kind of significant technological or company-wide changes with this one. So this was the first Disney cartoon produced in 2.35 to 1 Cinemascope, which kind of changed up the aspect ratio and the way that it was shown. And it's also the first Disney cartoon distributed by Buena Vista Film Distribution Company, which was their shift away from RKO to distribute their own shorts for what they thought would make them more money. This one was directed by Ward Kimball and Charles A. Nichols and written by Dick Humor. And this one was released November 10th of 1953. So essentially what this did was it went through the history of music, basically explaining that all musical instruments come down to some kind of horn, some kind of whistle, some kind of string instrument, and something that goes boom. Specifically drums, but really anything that kind of crashes together. And I thought that this was pretty successful in providing information about how these different things work. I actually found myself learning a surprising amount about how different instruments work within different kind of fields. But unfortunately, there is so much racism in this short. They do some really really amazing things and some really, really terrible things as they show the history of music, specifically with very racist depictions of Africans and very racist depictions of uh, Asian people. This was one that I was actually really looking forward to this one, in part because of growing up with the Disney sing-along tapes, which I've mentioned, I feel like, many times before on this podcast already. I'd never seen this short in whole. I'd only seen the footage of that, uh, of it recut to the Disney sing-along sort of intro music that they had put together. And so, like, the visuals in the classroom, I knew very well, and it was cool to finally see them in context. And then I was very disappointed by the the racism. But I think the concept of the short and the the overall art design I really, really like. But the racism just really obviously takes away from the entire experience of actually watching it. I will say the running gag of the broken strings in the plunk segment actually did make me laugh after like the fourth time they did it. So that that was funny and was not racially based humor you know and like i said i really like the overall sort of kind of flat and very almost like paper cutout feeling art style overall like a lot of like sharp weird angles to things you know and, and a lot of like it almost reminded me of the like rocky and bullwinkle cartoon style of drawing and so like i appreciate that but the extreme stereotyping is just uh just makes this a, a kind of uncomfortable watch Every few seconds, something happens where you're like, that is, that's not okay. <laughs> and so I was, I was very eager to actually finally see this and then very disappointed uh, once I kept running into those. That's frankly kind of how I felt during Fantasia because I had heard such amazing things about Fantasia as a whole before I had heard about some of the, uh, 
really awful parts of Fantasia. And I feel like, similarly, this had some really interesting points, some really kind of creative animation styles. And I, I particularly enjoyed the toot section because I actually learned a lot about how those kinds of instruments work. But at the end of the day, for me, I just, I didn't want to even finish it with how badly the racism and occasionally sexism ended up being. I say it's unfortunate because there's so much other good artistry in this, but it's, it. I mean, when it's, when I say it's unfortunate, I mean that in the absolute strongest sense of that word, because all of these things feel fairly avoidable. And it just really says a lot about the men behind this, unfortunately, that that is, that is how they chose to present this material. But I, I do think that the factual information in here is actually also very interesting and stuff I only learned about, you know, in, in like music class in high school. But I think, you know, seeing information like this presented in a cartoon format can, can make it also like very memorable and enjoyable to watch. Uh, and it really just is unfortunate. Like I said, it, it's, it just makes it really uncomfortable. And again, one where like, if it weren't for that stuff in it, this would be a really easy one to recommend people to seek out. But it's like, I got to, you know, put a bunch of caveats around that, unfortunately, in order to, to make that recommendation. And I don't know that that's actually worth it. The next one we're going to talk about is uh, How to Sleep uh, from Christmas of 1953, uh, also directed by Jack Kinney and again written by Mitch Schaffer and Nick George this time. This is the last entry in the Goofy series. It's popped up a bunch of times on, on various other programming. You know, this was this was not good I, to me. This was fine. Um, I, I had definitely seen it before or at least had seen parts of it before. And I think of, I keep thinking back to the history of aviation from victory through air power as sort of a, a, a weird, like a more serious model for these goofy shorts. Cause so many of them are like, you know, in order to fully understand, we're going to take you through the history of this thing. And, and this one just like, I don't know, it just didn't make me laugh at all. Like it just, it just wasn't funny enough to justify anything that was happening. It, this was, this actually might've been my least favorite overall actually like it just really didn't do much for me i was really hoping to like this one i have a fatigue disorder so i was like oh boy i really need to learn more about this uh and it it wasn't very funny it had more sexism and racism again because how how could we not throw in horrible things but one of the things for me, and this is going to sound so stupid, I am a stickler for knowing history if you're going to tell history. And the thing that just drove me absolutely insane is that it says it's talking about the Dark Ages and then it shows cavemen. The Dark Ages are typically understood to be like the early medieval era, which is very much not cavemen. I, I'm aware that's like a nitpick, but it drives me absolutely insane. <laughs> no, I, I think that's fully valid in this case. I mean, as someone who has a vested interest in medieval history, I, I fully agree with you. And the Dark Ages themselves are a slanderous name given by people who like to call their time the Enlightenment, decide, uh, despite some of their own very backward thinking at the time. So I, I'm certainly sympathetic to that. But, you know, it's one of those things like if, if this 
if if the short were better overall, then you know that wouldn't bother me as much. But yeah, I, I agree that also that also rubbed me the wrong way. And you know, this was not the short that involved Christopher Columbus. So <laughs> yeah, I feel like there's been a lot of discussion of like history in these, and they are so often not in any way a good way of showing off history, which is disappointing given how invested Walt is about to become in documentaries. Yeah, like I said, th this one overall just kind of, you know, it was fine. You know, I, I didn't hate watching it, but it just really, you know, I, I have mostly already forgotten about it even after seeing it only a few hours ago. One thing that I will say is that we are about to kind of hit a jump period. So we're going to be jumping from the 1953 shorts to 1956 for our next one in the bag. There were other shorts in the time in between, but not terribly many and not many that stand out. So our next short in the bag uh, was directed by Jack Hanna and written by Dave DeTige and Albertino. This was released in July of 1956. And essentially what it is, is kind of a forest littering ad that also pokes fun at Humphrey the Bear. So going into kind of the history with this, uh, it was the last short to be distributed by RKO. It is also the final Disney short to be produced in Cinemascope. From A Cowboy Needs a Horse onward, most others would basically be produced with the Academy ratio. So that was a short-lived experiment that they just kind of had to figure out. So we'll be making a bit of a jump forward for this next one, going from 1953 to 1956 with In the Bag. There definitely were shorts in the time between these, but not terribly many, and not many that were hugely significant. In the Bag was directed by Jack Hanna and written by Dave DeTige and Al Bertino, and it was released in July of 1956. So this short was basically a combination of telling people not to litter and trying to make a kind of Tom Sawyer-esque funny video about a guy who didn't want to do his job, basically. Um, where essentially a park ranger uh, realizes that the park and the landscape has gotten horribly littered on, is really kind of full of junk, and decides that instead of cleaning it up himself, he's going to force all of the bears to do it. In what eventually becomes just a desperate plea for food from the bears as they're being kind of withheld food until they pick up all of the litter. This one was kind of uh, significant historically, the last short to be distributed by RKO from Disney, and it's also the final Disney short to be produced in Cinemascope. So from A Cowboy Needs a Horse on, most other shorts would basically just be in the standard Academy ratio. This turned out to be kind of an experiment that just didn't quite work for them. So Humphrey was, Humphrey the Bear was the last of only seven Disney characters who had their own series. And these series can kind of be identified by their logo kind of opening up the cartoon. The six others were Mickey Mouse, Donald Duck, Goofy, Pluto, Chip and Dale, who kind of counted as one person, and Figaro the Cat, surprisingly. 
so this one, while it wasn't necessarily the most well-known, it actually kind of stood out. It ended up showing on television multiple times before coming to home video in VHS and DVD. And essentially, as you go through it, we are just basically watching this park ranger try to take advantage of the bears, and Humphrey the bear keeps trying to do his job. The ranger first starts off by making it a kind of dance and a game to pick up the trash, and then basically just withholds food from the poor bears to try and get them to do it. And Humphrey gets left with basically all of the litter to deal with himself, which he has to kind of scramble to get done in a way that, to me, was very reminiscent of basically a kid being told they couldn't play until they cleaned their room. Like, he's hiding it under bushes and in hot springs and volcanic uh, eruptions, just trying to essentially get rid of the trash so that he can eat dinner. Leading up to probably kind of the, the most significant bit of this, where he gets frustrated and decides he's just going to light all the litter on fire, only to be stopped by Smokey the Bear, who is not a Disney character, but was given permission to be in this and another Disney short. Basically because Disney had let the U.S. Forest Service use Bambi characters before, which oddly gave them permission to use Smokey the Bear when they felt like it. Yeah, and I will say, Smokey showing up in this is by far the funniest thing that I wa that I saw in any of these 11 shorts because I did not expect that to happen. And I think it is the comedic timing of it and because of the like limited animation they use for Smokey where like only his mouth moves, like the the whole thing of it just it really it actually made me laugh out loud and it i just found it extremely hilarious just the, the unexpectedness the surprise of it the timing of it that all absolutely worked for me i mean i i just also genuinely really like smoky the bear but this does feel like you know they should almost like make you watch this whenever you like have to enter a national park you should have to like sit there and watch this eight minute short to remind you not to like throw your trash on the ground and light fires because that's bad for the parks. I will say the one thing that kind of got me with this one is the litterers, in part because they aren't really shown, don't come across as the villain to me. The park ranger does. I kept waiting for him to kind of get his comeuppance, uh, which, spoiler alert, he, he doesn't. He just kind of continues to make the bears do you know, whatever he says. So I thought that there were some great buildups and Smokey just appearing was definitely unexpected and somehow, I don't know how to say, it. like it felt illegal. Like that's not allowed <laughs> to happen. It, it felt like the kind of thing that you would find like on the early days of YouTube of like people mashing up characters, not like an officially licensed Disney cartoon. But unfortunately, because of the way it's framed, I feel like it actually doesn't shame the litterers nearly as much as it does lazy park rangers. I mean, that's fair. And the park ranger character, who does, have, by the way, have a name, he is Jay Audubon Woodlore. He is kind of an antagonist in a bunch of Donald Duck cartoons where Donald Duck is like trying to do camping or whatever. And he'll constantly be reminding Donald of like the rules and this is the right way to do this and that. And obviously Donald gets very frustrated with it. So I, 
he is meant to be the antagonist character. But I do think it shows the problem of what happens when you just like litter in a nice park pretty well. But I, I, I agree with you. It's not the, it's not really about littering so much as it is about the park ranger being lazy. But but I, I do think that it, it does tie together pretty nicely. I find it wildly fascinating that Humphrey is only one of seven characters to get his own series. There weren't many in the series. I think there were two or three. You know, he's a character that does not get mentioned, like, ever anymore. He did make a cameo in Ralph Breaks the Internet. Apparently, when Vanellope is uh, visiting ohmydisney.com, he is doing a dance and picking trash up on the floor somewhere in the background. So it it's nice. I do like that animators are all kind of animation history nerds, and they do drop in references to things, because that one makes this podcast more fun, but also that like it kind of keeps those characters alive, even in very small ways. Uh, but this kind of felt the closest to like a Looney Tunes short in terms of like the sense of humor and like the broad physical comedy compared to any anything else uh, that we watched for this episode. But the question I kept coming back to that I wanted to ask you, Megan, about this is, do you think that Humphrey knows Bongo? <laughs> You know, I, I don't feel like he he does. They seemed like very different kinds of bears. But I did just keep thinking about, like, you know, uh, when the park ranger tries to make it a game, he's, like, singing a song, and the bears are all, like, picking up their trash and, like, bumping bottoms. And I just kept waiting for, like, one of them to slap the other one. Yep, yep. I thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do feel like it's contributing to the overall confusion about how bears actually work, but but maybe not as much as uh, modern internet videos where I always like watch bears like playing on like tire swings and going down slides. And I'm like, oh, they're just big puppies with razors for nails. Like <laughs> if we just file those, they'll be great. So no, I don't feel like Humphrey and Bongo know each other, but I do feel like Disney doesn't know what a bear is and and may take uh, another few decades to really figure out what bears are. Yeah, I mean, if they had written the bear necessities before this, maybe they would have had a better idea as to what a bear is. <laughs> I was thinking more along the lines of Brother Bear, which is, is a little bit more more bear-like, but, but Baloo is, uh, is iconic. I've actually not seen uh, Brother Bear, so I'm I'm actually really looking forward to you know three years from now when we get to the <laughs> the, the aughts. One day I will know things you don't. There will be there will be a pivot point in this podcast eventually where you will start to know things that that I don't in terms of firsthand experience or childhood experience. It's somewhere. It's somewhere post Hercules, like pre tangled somewhere in there like that that's like my dark period where i wasn't super engaged with a bunch with with disney stuff so I, i'm excited to get there but I, I i really liked it's in the bag actually i was surprised by how much i enjoyed it because i picked it because of this the place that it holds kind of in in the time period and the fact that it was a humphrey one i was like that's that's weird we should we should talk about it and then the last shirt that we're going to cover today uh, from one year later, 1957, The Story of Any Burke, USA, directed by Clyde Geronimi, uh, written by Dick Humor, released June 19th, 1957. This puts cars on trial for being 
terrible, basically, is the plot of this. We see a a prosecutor who is voiced by Hans Conried, uh, who I immediately recognized his voice, could not place it at the top of my head, and then was not su- surprised to discover that he voices uh, George Darling and Captain Hook in Peter Pan, uh, which has come out by the time this, this comes out. So... You know, his his voice performance in Peter Pan and in this I actually think is like incredible and very funny. And he does he's one of those voice actors that does the whole range of like just being like calm and soft spoken to being like foaming at the mouth <laughs> and can be funny and, and go back and forth between the two in really funny ways. And this, the design of the cars in this, as well as the uh short that we didn't talk about from this time period, Susie the Little Blue Coop serve as sort of the design inspiration for the Pixar Cars uh, franchise, which I think is also just an interesting sort of footnote. This one I actually had seen before, and fairly recently, I went to an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art in New York that was about cars and car designs, and this was one of the things that they were playing on a loop, actually, as part of the exhibit. And so I actually like, stood there and watched the whole, you know, eight or nine nine minute thing, this was like last year or the year before. And it wasn't until the it started over again that I realized it was actually a Disney cartoon because I was like, oh, this feels like it was like an educational <laughs> kind of short. But, you know, overall, I, I enjoyed this. It, it also made me think of, you know, Mr. Toad being put on trial because it kind of follows a very similar, not the same at all, really, but like, you know, that, that that sort of like, we're going to do a suspenseful courtroom scene, but in a humorous way, uh, it, it, it felt like it had a similar bent. And then it, it serves as a nice bookend with Motor Mania in terms of the 1950s. You know, I definitely made the connection with Mr. Toad and with Motor Mania. I oddly, I guess just because of the trial, kept thinking about the episode of Batman the Animated Series where the villains put Batman on trial for making them be villains because it had the same kind of circular logic of like, I mean, did they make you? Does the car make you, you know, drink and drive or or whatnot? Did Batman really make you become a violent sociopath? So I I kept connecting with that one. I will say, I'm actually surprised I didn't make that connection because Batman the Animated Series is uh, my favorite show of all time. So, but I, I, I really do like that episode. That is one of my favorites. It, it is one of the best episodes. It, and that show is one of the best uh, animated superhero shows because it did, it did some of the dark, but it also got the, the fun and the campy. And I, I just, yes, uh, Batman the Animated Series is, is amazing. Is the... That's that's our conclusion for the '50s Disney cartoon. <laughs> uh, yeah, once once we finish this Disney podcast, we can do a Batman the Animated Series podcast. Okay, so it'll just be another ten, twenty years or so, and we should be able to cover that. I think there's only like, well, yeah. If if we only do Batman the Animated Series, that would only take us probably like two years. But if we do the whole DC animated universe, that's going to take a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> but it will let me talk about Batman Beyond, so it might be worth it. You know, I know an awful lot about the uh, Damian Wayne saga of the current uh, animated uh, DC universe, but uh, I think <laughs> we're going a little a little off track here. We haven't had a good tangent this episode, so I thought it was time. <laughs> you know, I I I agree. I 
I actually really liked a lot of these 50s cartoons. I, I feel like those who are listening can tell that there are some I really liked and I just kind of was indifferent or hated everything else. I actually really liked this one because as I was sitting watching it, and those of you listening at home, I, I really encourage you to pause now and watch it and then come back. Okay, that's a super short pause, but you know, pause buttons keep it in frame, so it's, it's all good. As I was watching it, I kept going like, man, if they made this today, this would be about guns. And I was going to put it in the notes of, like, I don't want to bring up guns because that's going to make this too political, but that's absolutely what it would be today. And then this brought in guns. And so for those of you who didn't follow my instructions and didn't pause this and go immediately watch it, as they're putting, you know, the cars on trial, the uh, defense attorney basically pulls up, a, like, a police lineup of people and he's like, Oh, these poor people who were, you know, twisted and uh, perverted by cars. Actually, what if they had a gun and just shot you? What if this old lady <laughs> just shot you? What if this guy had a bomb? And I was like, oh, okay, so we're really going there. It, it shocked me, uh, kind of how far they were willing to go. It's still, I, I would say, a, a fairly conservative argument because even though it was saying that the people are responsible for their actions it was very much in the vein of like some people are just evil i i did like the idea of actually holding people accountable for their road rage or motor mania instead of uh the very jekyll and hyde shift of the early 50s i did like that it put responsibility on the people but it, it did basically turned them into complete maniacs for a little bit. It was like, ah, this person who's a distracted driver. Otherwise, they could just be shooting everyone in sight. And that seemed like a bit of a jump to me. Yeah, I mean, it did remind me of the very, like, late 90s, early 2000s, um, you know, NRA kind of uh, calling card of guns don't kill people, people kill people argument, which... I'm not really sympathetic in the case of either cars or guns because, like, I am a person who absolutely loves cars. I think cars are really cool. They're I I love driving, but I'm also anti-car in the sense of like people are clearly not interested enough in driving to stay off of their phones long enough to do it safely. And so the problem is the people. But if we just took the cars away and had good public transportation, people could text the, all they wanted while they're on a train because they're not the ones driving it. So I was surprised that they went there. Uh, I don't necessarily buy that argument, but and I'm also not surprised by, you know, that something from the decade that brought us the um, uh, Dwight Dean Eisenhower uh, federal interstate highway system. Uh, I didn't think it was going to be anti-car necessarily, but I do, I, I did appreciate sort of the turn of the, the legal argument, but I might... I might consider siding with the prosecution in this, although the gag of like the you know, the defense argument being so good that like everyone just left because they were like, there's no, because, it, you know, when you turn the accusation on the people, uh, I don't want any part of this now. Like, it's easy to like, it's funny because like they both, I feel like, you know, motor mania blames the car for the way that 
George Geef becomes an alternate personality. And this is very much blaming the people. But it is funny how, like, you know, you're pointing out when we talked about Monermania, how it's like, oh, it's it's kind of easy satire to watch because you can laugh at yourself, but it's not accusing you of doing anything wrong, really. Whereas this is very much like, no, you are the problem. <laughs> and then the short is like, we got nowhere to go with that. So uh, we're done. Goodbye. <laughs> the end. But I, I really, I liked the look of this. I really love the, you know, the, the, the different witnesses where like, I built this beautiful super highway and, and what ruined it was cars, <laughs> you know, which is a very fun, paradoxical statement. And, you know, I, I like the map of the United States with all the little cars driving around all the little twisty highways and stuff. Like it, it's got some very fun, just some very fun things going on in it. And I, I did think that this was in terms of, overall like look and feel and tone and you know commentary but also humor i i think this is probably this is definitely one of the better ones as we said motormania and then anyberg usa they have the opposite argument and yet i find both very well done and compelling which is you know a, a toast to disney i really do find both of them very interesting, especially because they built sympathy in opposite ways. That in Motor Mania, we have sympathy for Mr. Walker, who then just utterly loses it behind the wheels. But then seeing kind of the accused cars, like, oh, oh my god, I'm terrified. Oh, well, the judge is supposed to be impartial. But is he? And he's very clearly not. I felt like it it had some really great moments building up kind of the cars as these innocent victims, playing with the idea of the legal system being unfairly kind of targeted against people. I especially felt that when the prosecutor was attacking the beat up car and it's just like, look at this monster, it doesn't even have an eye. And I'm like, and, and I'm supposed to think it's bad? Like, I feel bad for the person who, you know, broke its window. So I, I definitely feel that this was one of, definitely one of the better ones that we talked about and the better ones from the 50s overall. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad we're on the same page there. You know, and, and so this is sort of the, you know, the, the end of an era, you know, in the 1950s as a decade, you know, Disney produced... Uh, 94 shorts which is just an incredible amount of output and then we get to the 1960s and that number drops to 12 there's two in the 70s seven in the 80s nine in the 90s and six in the 2000s and so obviously like uh, you know there's less there have been less shorts made since the end of the 50s than there were in the 50s themselves and so we wanted to talk a little bit about why that why that came about first you know our our favorite uh cause of anything on this podcast which is walt got distracted by a different thing <laughs> so television and theme parks uh as we will talk about at the end of our next season really took up a lot of walt's time a huge factor was uh, disney's original distribute distributor rko kind of became an obstacle when it came to shorts if, if you want to talk a bit more about that megan If we dive into the deep dramas of Disney at the time, Roy was not happy with RKO, and RKO was not doing well in its own right, and so there were a lot of tensions with the company. 
specifically, uh, Disney was trying to put out the True Life Adventures, uh, which were live-action documentaries that we'll be talking about in a couple of weeks. And basically, they decided that nobody wants to see a live-action documentary. And no one wants to see these shorts. And so Walt and Roy basically decided, we're leaving RKO, we're going to set up our own distribution firm. It's just a matter of when and how. But the other thing that kind of happened was RKO repeatedly got sold to different people and the new people in control wanted absolutely nothing to do with shorts. They just felt that they were a waste of money. Specifically in 1948, Howard Hughes took over RKO. It didn't go well. And by 1955, it was acquired by the General Tire and Rubber Company, which is the best possible company to distribute animated films. The original RKO Pictures completely ceased production in 1957 and basically disappeared within the next two years. So what we kind of see is both Disney wanted to break from RKO and RKO was just kind of crumbling on its own right. As it kept passing between hands, they basically stopped caring about shorts, which then made Disney more frustrated with the fact that they were making shorts that RKO didn't want to sell. And so that kind of slowed uh, the production of shorts overall because Disney didn't know if they could actually distribute their own short films. Across the industry in general, there was an overall sort of decline in interest in making and distributing shorts, a lot of which had to do with television because uh, a lot of that kind of production on, you know, not full-length feature films shifted over to television at the time. Um, you know, and also... At the studio itself, there was a lot more resources being put into the features and finally being able to finish projects like Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan that had been in production, you know, on and off since right after Snow White came out in the 1930s. And so, you know, there's a lot of factors as to why, but I do think there's something really special about, like, I, I just really like short films in general, and I think there's something about animated shorts uh, that really... That, that are just really special. And, you know, I think if you're a person who grow, grew up watching, you know, Cartoon Network or reruns of Looney Tunes or stuff, you know, with the Disney shorts on the Disney Channel, I think you, you may like animated shorts more than you realize. You just don't think of them as animated shorts. Definitely. I think that, you know, we talked about last time uh, the Mickey Mouse shorts. The Mickey Mouse TV series and the wonderful world of Mickey Mouse TV series are literally just compilations of shorts, but people don't necessarily think of them in that vein. Part of that is because the industry as a whole basically stopped it, like we had been saying. Warner Brothers pretty much stopped all short films by 1969, which isn't that much further. MGM continued Tom and Jerry, but that became a series. Woody Woodpecker only lasted until 1972, and Hanna-Barbera basically just fully shifted everything into television. So The Pink Panther ends up being the last regular theatrical cartoon short series, and that ended in 1980. That sounds like a long time later, but it really isn't that long in the grand scheme of things that we see all of the major studios were shifting away and shifting towards either television or just full-length productions altogether which actually makes it kind of impressive that Disney continued at all. 
because they did. Like we said, it was very small numbers, but every decade had a handful of shorts. Uh, leading up to 2013, when Disney officially revived the shorts team as a way to train new writers and animators and experiment with new technology without having to invest all of their money like they would for a full-length animation project. So we see kind of this shift in the industry and specifically the shift in Disney, kind of uh, with their focus going to other projects, but also keeping the idea of experimenting with new technology and new ideas through short form media it just happened to be in the form of television instead of theatrical shorts yeah and i think i don't even think we get that 2013 revival without you know and i i almost hate to say it but i do have to give credit where credit is due without john lasseter because of his love of animation and and shorts i feel like especially early on were such a part of the pixar identity and you know i remember being a kid and just thinking it was really cool that like, yo, you'd go to see a Pixar movie and you would, would have no idea what the short before the movie was going to be. And so many of those are are really great and, and stand out. And so I think, you know, it's it's kind of nice that it does tie back to uh, the history of animation. And, and of course, there are tons of like independent animated shorts. Um, I love trying to go to see all of the uh, Oscar short programs every year where they package together all the Oscar nominated shorts and the animation one is typically my favorite. So like, it's not like animated shorts stopped altogether, but the studio certainly stopped making, uh, pretty much stopped making animated shorts for, you know, between 1980 and Toy Story coming out in 1995. There's like nothing, you know, just occasional things here and there, mostly from Disney, just kind of keeping that flame alive you know, when they got the impulse to do something d different or experiment with something, you know, and I think that, I don't know, there, there's something really special about it. And, you know, it, it tying this all together, you know, I think about watching stuff on Cartoon Network, like Dexter's Laboratory or Powerpuff Girls, where like, you know, it was a 22 minute TV show, but it was really two, like, you know, 10 minute shorts. And so, like, the format does kind of keep lingering on and on, but it really does just kind of shift over to television. Yeah, I think that we see definitely more serialization with the shorts. You know, previously, obviously, we had some degree of continuity, especially among kind of Mickey and friends. But it wasn't, you know, one plot going from section to section. It was you know, the same characters more or less being uh, available throughout different shorts. So I think television brought serialization and brought compilation in a new way, but we definitely see that continuity going through until, you know, as recently as last week when the Mickey Mouse series or the wonderful world of Mickey Mouse series ended with Steamboat Silly, which is a direct homage to the classic Disney shorts. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely, I, I completely agree with that. Megan, it's time, it, it's time to do our, our, maybe our, our favorite part of any of these episodes, which was your favorite of these shorts? See, I, I have an answer and yet I then immediately doubt it. I think that my favorite enjoyment wise is the story of Anyberg USA. Uh, that and Motor Mania, I, I like for 
obviously opposite reasons, but I feel like both are very good. But if we're talking like what will stick with me the longest, what will kind of hold in my soul, I think that has to be no smoking just because it did such an effective job. And then knowing the fates of Walt Disney and the voice of Goofy just adds kind of that uh, pall over the whole short. No, I, I I actually have the same exact take on these, uh, you know, based on the ones that we watch. And I will just sort of give like a special commendation for In the Bag for being the one that was the funniest and, and just made me laugh the most. So I will I, I will say th- those are certainly my my top four. And then, you know, I mentioned when we talked about it, my biggest disappointment is Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom, because that definitely has the, like, biggest potential that was totally wasted, you know. And, and I think the, you know, How to Sleep just becomes my least favorite overall because it just, you know, it just didn't do much for me, unfortunately. You know, it doesn't have some of the problematic elements of the others, but it also is just less interesting, you know, as a, as a watching experience. Yeah, I feel like one of the things that we talked about with Song of the South is that not that a good quality movie in any way makes the racism tolerable, but when you have a bad story and racism, like, that's just really, really awful. And I think that, you know, Toot, Whistle, Plunk, and Boom, just unfortunately, the the good parts aren't good enough to overcome it. So, of course, that one, I just don't know that I would want to watch again. But if we're just talking, like, quality of the story itself, How to Dance and How to Sleep were both pretty disappointing to me in that, you know, they do their jobs, they're, they're fine, but they don't, they don't have that layer of kind of intimacy that no smoking or even Motor Mania had that felt very much like this is a person who has lived this experience. They lack a certain like spark to them. Like they feel very formulaic to me, but they feel like they're stretching the formula, especially with how to sleep. So that turns us to the last question. And we've talked about this a little bit with this being the end, not necessarily of shorts, but of kind of the era of shorts, if you want to phrase it that way. How does that make you feel? How does that make you feel about the products we're going to get out of Disney in a time where they didn't have the shorts to use as creativity and as a technological sounding board? I don't know yet, because what I'm really interested in, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this episode now is... I'm very curious as we get into the 50s and 60s and as we get out of the era when people were doing animated shorts as well as features, what do the features start to look like? You know, like, do they get more lush because, like, all the animators are working on one movie at a time versus, like, three different movies and a bunch of shorts? I'm just very curious to see how that impacts things going forward and reading into some of the more of the TV stuff I think will be be also interesting. Overall, I, I miss the idea of shorts, and I, I do miss the getting a, a bonus movie when you go to a movie in the theater. You know, I would much rather sit through, you know, an eight-minute cartoon than three more trailers every time I go to an AMC. So, like, I, I would be more than happy to, you know, bring back theatrical animated or even live-action shorts as part of the, like, movie-going experience. You know, like, when 
they did get a horse in front of Wreck-It Ralph, or not, not in front of Frozen. Excuse me. That I have really like codified <laughs> that wrong information in my head. But like when they did get a horse in front of Frozen, I really liked Frozen. But I was like, oh, we also got a Mickey cartoon. Like I wish they would do that every single time. And so like that's something I would still long for Disney to do because there, I don't know, there's something unique about sort of like the eight minute cartoon format, you know, and since we recorded our previous bonus episode, Steamboat Silly has come out. And I think that being the same length as all of these sort of just reminded me that like, you can still tell stories at this length and like get a lot accomplished, you know, in that fairly limited runtime. And and so like, you know, having these things drop off and, you know, knowing that like, that's the last goofy cartoon, that's the last Mickey cartoon. Like it, it both made me want to seek out the other ones I haven't seen. Cause there's obviously a lot I've, I've not seen, uh, but also just sad that it's just, you know, a, a kind of part of the thing that just sort of fades away. Yeah. I think for me personally, one of the things that has been really rewarding in this podcast, but also somewhat depressing is that, there is just so much going on at a time that we, I, I end up planning every time we record for it to be a short episode and then it goes on <laughs> so much longer than I expect and yet we're barely scratching the surface. And back at this point in time, there really was so much going on because the shorts were entire industries of their own within the company. And I think that you know, to some extent, that doesn't go away. It just shifts when they're going to having television and having the Imagineers and all of that. But I do think that in my personal experience as a creative, having another project often helps because you need to get your mind off of the problem you're stuck on. And so for From my experience, if I was working on one major project and many little projects, then the little project can solve the big one. And I am concerned that we will start to see that the movies just kind of go with what they've got because they can't find what they need to fix it. Because they can't find those solutions in the smaller projects. Yeah, no, I I think that's a, that's a really great point, and and like I said, I think that's something I want to try to try to pay attention to, or at least think about as we move forward, especially with the animated films, you know. And I think back to stuff like the Old Mill, where they're like, we're gonna do a short that just proves out the multiplane camera. We're gonna do a couple shorts where we like practice drawing humans, and like, you know, there's something to be said for the amount of experimentation and like, you know, the amount of new characters. Like, you don't you know, obviously Figaro comes from a feature, but like you don't get a Humphrey the Bear when you're doing six shorts a year. Like that 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 would be a real accident. But when you're doing ninety five of them and you're like, hey man, this bear's really taken off. Like let's do a couple more with with, with that bear. Cause you know, Humphrey started out in like Donald and Goofy cartoons as sort of a recurring character, just like Chip and Dale started started out as recurring characters elsewhere. You know, you get sort of this 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 building of like not you know a shared cinematic universe but just like a pool of characters that you can draw from because like one time you needed someone for donald to you know scream and and yell at and you came up with a funny bear like you know there, there's something there is something to be said for that 
The other thing that I will say is I was never the kind of person who went to the movies very often. When I was younger, Blockbuster was still around, which, you know, I will sit here and scorn Disney for being so nostalgic, but I miss Blockbuster because you could walk in and see all of the movies and, and pick, you know, a, a favorite classic or something new. But because of that, I never really experienced, you know, going to the movie and seeing the shorts. But I've gotten into, you know, movie theater watching more in the last year or so. And my friends and I always mock the AMC ad about, you know, when you go to a movie at a theater, there's something special. We need to bring this back to the world post-COVID. And, and there's nothing wrong with that ad. It's just that they've been playing it for three years, so it gets a little dull. And I feel like having something just fun as bonus features would add so much to the experience. I was always a fan of getting bloopers in the credits of a movie. And I feel like we need to bring that back and we need to bring back shorts at the beginning of movies to just give people a little something extra and give other people the chance to see their creative works wind up on screen. And please note, if someone from Disney happens to be listening to this and thinks that is a really good idea, we're 100% on board, but do not make it a like 35-minute Frozen short before a 100-minute Pixar movie. That is not fair. Because <laughs> they, they did that before, I think it was the, the I think it was the, christmas frozen one that they put in front of coco and like coco is not a short pixar movie and people got so mad that they actually removed it <laughs> you know there are there are right and wrong lessons but like again like if there was a you know I, I as much as like olaf is not my favorite character but if there was like you know i went to see a different disney movie and they did the thing where there's like you know a color a colorful field and it's like olaf's goofy face coming at the screen i'm like oh we're getting an olaf short like I, i'd be i'd be fine with that as a, you know, eight minutes. That's what you get. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the six to ten minutes is is your sweet spot. I, I'm not saying there can't be things that are 30 minutes long, but uh, I especially don't want a 30 minute long short before, you know, the next five hour Avengers movie. <laughs> right. <laughs> so so there are limits, but yeah, I mean, I I like trailers. I like the experience of sitting in the movie theater, but I think that there's something special when you sit down to a movie and get, you know, a fun surprise out of it. And that's something that mm -hmm. I would like to be able to experience. And I do think people would value. It, it's going to sound silly, but I always think about Greece when they go to the drive-in and you see the little hot dog and soda, like, dancing in the background. Like... Give me just something fun and cute. It doesn't take that much time and effort. And I know that it doesn't necessarily make money on its own. But I do think that you would find that people have more brand loyalty when the brand is giving them more than just what it promises. Yeah, there's nothing you said for being surprised, you know, in, in, in a delighted way by something. And, and I also think that there is something to be said for making it feel like going to the movies is, is like an event or an activity in and of itself. Yeah, so if, if we want to say, you know, let's save the movies, I don't think we need Barbenheimer. I think we just need to bring back shorts beforehand. And frankly, I feel like 
they could probably play shorts from the Mickey Mouse and the Wonderful World of Mickey Mouse series that are the exact right length, that are the right vibes, and that most adults probably haven't seen. You know, very true. Make new ones by all means. Make new ones, but I I feel like you've got literally, you know, uh, dozens if not hundreds of shorts right there. Start throwing them in. We would love them. Let's do it. You know, when we're finally put in charge of uh, you know Disney the actual distribution, that'll be our first move. <laughs> <laughs> yes, one of these days, someone at Disney is gonna listen to all of these podcasts and hear every few episodes us randomly appealing to the Disney Corporation. And one of these days, they will start listening. Yep, and you know what? If you want to say thank you, you can throw some stock our way. I I won't complain. (laughs) That's the way to do it. But remember that, you know, also pay your actors and pay your writers and don't let AI take over the world. Those those are my more serious pleas. I would love a short, but try, try supporting the people who are creating amazing things as well. Absolutely. And, you know, we already know that uh, She-Hulk was created by an AI, so true <laughs> <laughs> oh god it's been forever since i thought about she hulk now i'm gonna have to rewatch the she hulk daredevil crossover episodes if anybody's still listening after all of our tangents next time on dream with mind and heart we will be heading into our third season which we have titled adventures in literature tune in for a deep dive and we mean deep into the creation of cinderella where we will discuss whether or not it really was the film that saved the studio and how it was made. In the meantime, you can always email us at dreamwithmindandheart at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, DreamMindHeart, and on Instagram at DreamWithMindAndHeart. Thanks to Rosalie Kicks for our artwork, Honey Badger's Folk for our theme song, and our editor, Tessa Suelo. <laughs>